Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Well, welcome again to the Talking Biotech Podcast, a podcast where we talk about major issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology that really do uh, help the people and the planet. Uh, my name is Kevin Fulta, and I'm here in Pullman, Washington. <laughs> yeah, at, at Rico's. <laughs> Rico's Public House uh, with an uh, old friend. I'm sitting here with Amit Dingra, and Dr. Dingra is a faculty member here in the Horticultural Sciences Department at uh, Washington State University. How's it going, Amit? It's going great, thank you. Good to see you. Hey, good to see you. You're my, I'm your first postdoc, man. Yeah, I, I, I seem to recall the uh, <laughs> the label beer mentor. <laughs> yes, you are my beer mentor. You taught me how to taste the flavors in beer, man. <laughs> That's right. We, and we tasted a few here. We did, we did. All right, but anyway. Um, S- starting from Pabst Blue Ribbon. <laughs> starting from Pabst Blue Ribbon. Well, um, Okay, so, but we digress, <laughs> don't we? Yep. That's, uh, anyway, so uh, the main reason I wanted to talk to you today was because you've become an expert in a number of different crops, especially um, how they're grown and how they're bred. And some of the ones that we haven't talked yet on the podcast are um, things like um, some of the rosaceous tree crops. And so if we could spend some time on pears, you know what? So tell me a little bit about pears. Where do they come from in time and space? And, uh, well, first of all, where do they originate? Well, they originate in the same area where apples did. So, you know, the Kazakhstan area where the apples came from. So similar center of origin, essentially. And, uh, you know, pears have kind of remained back frozen in time to some extent. So that's where they come from. And we are kind of, in the U.S. in particular, we are growing varieties that were released about 200 to 250 years ago in Belgium and France. Really? So all the ones that we're currently eating, not currently eating, we're eating popcorn right now, <laughs> but I mean that we enjoy in the supermarket are old varieties. Yeah, yeah. And so Bartlett and Anjou, D'Anjou and Comis, these are all French and Belgian 
releases, which were over two, two, 200 years ago. In fact, Van Gogh used to paint a lot of these pear trees because they were they were all over the countryside over there. Really? And so, why why do we have no new ones? Well, it's kind of uh, it's kind of an interesting story uh, because you know there's an adage in the industry which goes pears for heirs. And part of the reason how that has been, theirs is a little bit different. It's related to Apple, but that relationship with Apple has kind of costed its progress in a way. Uh, apples are picked ripe and mature off the tree, but pears are not ripe when you pick off the tree. So they have to be treated properly. So the French figured it out. Uh, you know, it's part of a culinary experience. It's part of a culture. You you have to enjoy that. In fact, recently I was being interviewed by BBC, and they informed me that they actually eat their pears with fork and knife. And in the U.S., we want to make sure that it's convenience, right? We want to have a fruit and piece of fruit in our hand and run. But pears are far more juicier. You, you just can't hold them in your hands and run with them. Yeah, well, you like scissors. <laughs> yeah, that's like, you can't run with scissors. Yeah. So, but so, so this is really interesting because I never knew that. Yeah. So, but, so going back to the other question, are people actually trying to improve pears, or what's the deal? So there's been a very uh, old breeding program that has existed in West Virginia, but the entire industry has basically been on the west side. Basically, uh, Washington, uh, Oregon, and California have been the traditional, have been traditionally producing these this fruit. And there are orchards even today that date back over a century ago. In fact, I've stood by them taking photographs as historical relics. Yeah. So it's kind of fascinating to see that history that has passed on from generation to generation. Uh, there has been a breeding program, and uh, it's a USDA-funded program. And their main goal was disease resistance. The focus was not that much on developing new varieties, particularly. But recently, my program and Kate Evans' program, who's also a professor in uh, home breeding, uh, based in Wenatchee at, at WSU, we've been collaborating a lot to develop crosses between some of the locally acclimated uh, varieties, which include Comis, Pear, Apple and, uh, sorry, Comis, uh, Bartlett's and Anjus. So yeah, we're doing that. And part of the reason change has not come, it's kind of interesting, is the rootstock. So you know that these trees don't grow on their own roots. They require another rootstock that can control the size, that can control precocity, which is time to flower as soon as you plant it, and also productivity. So what has happened is that while apples there were uh, dwarf rootstocks developed back in East Malling. That's where things started. Um, that has kind of transformed the industry from a $200 million industry to a $4 billion industry today. Uh, similarly, in Sweet Cherry, we are seeing similar gains by controlling vigor so that people can kind of pedestrian orchards. You can walk around, pick fruit, but more importantly, you can, util you can change the architecture to harvest light properly and get more productivity. So rather than growing as much fruit as you can, farmers started the concept of target fruit. I need 100 pieces of fruit that will be the same size because size does matter when it comes to fruit. Yeah, and so you said, and I guess along the same line, what was the word you used? Precocity. Precocity. Yeah. So that's like plant sleaziness? Well, it could be. It's basically just, you know, it, it should flower quickly so that it can produce quickly. Yeah, yes. so it's okay. okay. Well, yeah, yeah. we don't need to go there. Yeah, but <laughs> just interesting concept. Yeah. So going back to, so what about China? I know that there's a lot of guys I know, one who worked in my lab, who was um, leading a, a genetic improvement program in China. Now, is that a kind of where these crops drifted from their center of origin into 
China and other places for further development? Or can you fill in a little bit of the story about how they got from Kazakhstan yeah. um, to, uh, to where they are today? Well, as you know, the, when people came on the Mayflower and thereafter, they brought in a lot of these fruits, apples and pears, and all the homesteads would basically plant. And people, as people moved westward, they would basically have cider apples, they would have pears, so that they can actually have fruits all along the season, and some for eating, some for making pies, some for juices, some for hard cider. So that was part of the culture, basically. In fact, interesting factoid. The lands we are sitting on, the Palouse, used to be the main origin for, or main center for apple and pear and plum production, because uh, uh, this, this, these lands were very well suited for that. But as soon as the Columbia Water Basin Project came, the entire industry moved westward towards the foothills of Cascades. So it's been interesting that you can go around here and find old orchards. So there are lost uh, apples of the Palouse. That's another project we work on. We're trying to revive some things that have kind of been lost in time and space. Oh, that's uh, cool. So, yeah, that's another topic for another podcast, perhaps. Yeah, but that's it's still pretty neat. So yeah. why don't you give us a little bit of an idea of where we are, though? We are, we are sitting on the almost eight miles west of the Idaho border. And uh, just south of the middle, we are, we are probably about eight hours south of Canada. And uh, we, are, we are kind of in the middle of uh, nowhere, but in the middle of everywhere. This is the Palouse. This is where the uh, glacial waters pass by, and they've kind of created these rolling hills, which uh, has become a center for production of wheat. And this is the lentil capital of the world. Yeah, the, t the town is called Pullman, but the whole region is called the Palouse. Yeah, so it's uh, lentils and other pulses, or just lentils? Lentils and chickpeas and peas. All right, so pulses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. It's I kind of interesting. I'm from India, and a lot of the pulses that we eat back in India are grown here. Yeah. And whenever there's shortage there, we provide pulses back to my motherland. I mean, you send them home in a box or something? Well, I wish I could, yeah, but... <laughs> like a UPS container coming your way, you know? <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> you know, a big box. Yeah. Well, um, all right, so let's go back to apples. Yeah, so, or you bears. mean pears, yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, it's, so when we're looking at uh, what's happening today in Paris, what are people trying to do in terms of genetic improvement? Are there specific traits that they are trying to chase either here or maybe in other places in the world? So let me, you, you said earlier China. So it's interesting that pears have diversified into European pears and China, Asian pears, essentially. And those are very, very different. The Asian pears look like apple, but they don't have the same flavor profile like European pears. Very different texture. Yeah, very different texture, very different preferences. So in the U.S. in particular, despite the demographics that continue to change and evolve, uh, more than 95% consumption goes towards European pears. So there's a really preferred pair. And part of that is a legacy that most of the people here are from Europe. Right? So, <laughs> and I mean, their heritage is from, you know, European countries. Right. So. So they brought their, uh, their sort of culture here in a way, and I've kind of stuck with that. So if you cross the two, you can get some traits that are desirable, but those those trees don't do very well in our environment. There can be some disease issues uh, that are prevalent here that don't allow hybrids to work very well. But some of the traits that are being worked on would be uh, better flavor, predictable ripening, uh, as well as uh, you know no scuffing, no browning of the skin. Uh, these are some traits and ready to eat of the tree. So as I was telling you earlier, apples, you can pick an apple of a tree and eat it. Pears are very unique. They have to, they have to be exposed to like a cold uh, for 15 to 90 days 
for them to get on that second kick where they're they will ripen and the, the starches will melt into uh, sugars and they will have that beautiful texture and I have to say that if you've tasted a good pear which is perfectly ripened it's an orgasmic experience okay well hey I guess I've never had a good pear <laughs> yes you haven't <laughs> but what about what about the ones that are used in processing like in cans and stuff are those the same cultivars or are those different they're mostly the same cultivars because we don't grow the production so the thing is if those pears are not big enough of course they go in towards processing but the processing industry has been kind of going away and then brings up a, a very good topic you know some of the research we've been doing is We've been trying to uh, be pr predictably ripen pears, and that has kind of led to another project where we are able to slice them properly, pack them in bags, and sell, sell make it uh, make it as a product that can actually increase per capita consumption of pears. And I just want to add another part in apples. You know that you you you're on a plane. I'm sure as you flew out here, you were offered cheese and fruit plate in which you will have grapes and sliced apples but never pears because if you if you try to sell a sliced green pear it never ripens and if it's already ripe and if you slice it it's dead in like few hours so, so farmers or the producers have been trying to apply this ethylene blocker which is used in apples all the time to delay ripening but in pears that doesn't work so some of the research we've been doing is to kind of convert that we were able to predictably ripen and now we can actually produce slice product as well in pears so let's go backwards a little bit yeah so if we talk about ethylene yeah. ethylene is a naturally occurring gas that's produced by plants that um, leads to events and gene expression changes that are associated with ripening and so we'll see like an ethylene burst and a lot of different kinds of fruit that comes with the onset of ripening and changes of uh, genes and breakdown of starches to sugars, change in proteins, all that stuff, right? So, what is it that uh, so you, there's a what is it that you know about that blocks that? What is the compound that blocks it? So there is a you know like like we see light, we have receptors that see perceive light. Similarly, all similarly all these plants are naturally produce a protein. It's called an ethylene receptor. So rather than seeing light, they bind ethylene. So there were uh, scientists back in North Carolina back in the 90s. They found a chemical called 1-methylcyclopropene, which would basically bind that receptor and not allow ethylene to bind it. So when that happened, what would happen naturally? What would happen then is the fruit is not perceiving uh, ethylene, and none of those downstream processes would happen. So the the product could sit on the shelf longer, and a customer could get a good product so they're not paying for things that are rotting or once they take it home they just kind of die on you so that's that's what ethylene and the this one methyl cyclopropene does and the common name of one methyl cyclopropene or the trade name is smart fresh okay and so this is something that you can spray on a plant to kind of give it a little bit of a slower ripening yeah because it's not seeing the uh, chemical that it makes yeah to induce the right. So and as, slow it, yeah, as you know, Kevin, most all plants produce ethylene under different circumstances. We are talking about fruit ripening, right. but under stress, all plants release this gas to tell themselves, hey, we are under stress, we need to figure out things to kind of combat the stress. That's right. So that's where I think this is this is a fascinating way because 
one of the biggest advantages of Smart Fresh, I think, is you know we talk about feeding 70% uh, or producing 70% more food to feed these 10 billion people who are going to be here on this planet. But nobody talks about the 40% food we waste. So these are some tools, natural tools that nature is teaching us, you know, about which can help us also make a dent in that extra food production by saving food post-harvest. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a huge issue. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about 50% spoilage yeah. in, the, in, in the developing world, 40% going to waste yeah. spoilage. So these kinds of strategies are really important and, and cool that you're doing this. So let's yeah. do this. Let's take a break here and okay. we'll be back. Um, we're, I'm sitting here in Pullman, Washington at Rico's uh, speaking with uh, Dr. Amit Dingra uh, about uh, pears. And we'll be right back with some more Talking Biotech. The Talking Biotech podcast has one goal, and that's to get you excited about your food, new technologies, and the good things we can do when we put the two together. We live in a time of great innovation and discovery, yet the new findings are slow, oftentimes, to reach the public. And, and why is that? Because of the tremendous misunderstanding, coupled to a complacent population that would rather err to the side of caution, rather than implement safe technology that can help farmers, consumers, and the planet. And that's why it's so important that you listen and share the stories of agricultural technology. That's why this podcast is important, because it provides you with access to the experts that tell the beautiful stories of the genetic improvement of crops, animals, and medicines. So please make sure you complete a review on iTunes, share the podcast with a friend, listen to it around the dinner table, and share the stories of the secret lives of the botanical critters in each layer of that seven-layer salad. With your help, we can move agricultural innovation to application, and that happens with communication. We're all in this together to bring safe and affordable technologies that help our people and our planet. So we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast, and so I'm sitting here in Pullman, Washington, with Dr. Amit Dingra, who's an associate professor. Yes, I'm an associate. And uh, in the Horticultural Sciences Department, who's an expert in a whole variety of different fruit crops, and what are some of the ones you study? What do you exactly work on? So I work with a lot of fruit crops, apples, pears, cherries, grapes, strawberries, that I picked from your lab. You know, how that was a hobby project and that got me my job, right? That's right. That was fun. And uh, so, yeah, these are the main crops I work with, but there are other uh, systems I work with uh, depending on, you know, tomatoes is another one, peas. Uh, We also work with very cool plants that can fix uh, carbon without the Kranz anatomy, like corn. So, I mean, corn has Kranz anatomy, but we work with systems which are related to spinach, but they they are more efficient in carbon fixation. The Kranz anatomy. We'll cover that another day. <laughs> okay. I guess to me, so we should mention, like you used to work with me in Florida. Yes, of course. Yeah, you were my first postdoc. Yes. <laughs> How cool is that? It's it fun. is so cool. And uh, we, could, we could probably tell funny stories about you that. You remember you'd l- lend me your shirt and your jacket so I could come interview, man. So That's grateful right. for that. <laughs> and I, I think I loaned you I think I think loaned you a shirt and a jacket that I got when I 
did my interview. It's the lucky one. Yeah, I know. I think I think I got it because well, long story, but I got it kind of secondhand. But let's go back to this other stuff. So you left my lab in two thousand six. Six. Wow. Yeah. And so you've been here for a while, and so you've been doing a rather robust program in various fruits and vegetables and using genomic tools more than anything yeah. else. And um, one of the things that you've done is started a company called Phytelligence. Yeah. And what does your company do? Well, Phytelligence is a solution to the farmers who, in the tree fruit industry who've been looking for it for a very long time. So before I answer what the company does, I think the backstory is very important. So when I joined here, I realized that, uh, you know, I've done a lot of tissue culture work. I've been working on a lot of transformation as well, but which requires a lot of expertise in tissue culture. And that's why I got involved in that strawberry work that you did in your lab. But when I got here, I started speaking to a lot of farmers. And my program was in genomics, but the mandate was to help the farmers solve their problems. So the best thing I ever did was on advice from one of my colleagues. Well, I started touring with the farmers and the nurseries, not just in the Washington state area, but across the globe. And that's the best part. We can go anywhere in the world where fruit grows, and it's just amazing how, how diverse these areas are. So anyways, I started talking, understanding what the problems were. And I found out two major themes, uh, and most both of them relates to risk, risk in tree fruit production. So you know that unlike corn and wheat, these trees don't grow from seed. They have to be vegetatively propagated. And everywhere I went, people were talking about how, how they wished that their they could get the trees when they wanted them, uh, they could get them uniform, and moreover, they could get their genetically certified that, hey, I've ordered a red apple, I should get a red apple. Or in that matter, if, if there's a disease-resistant rootstock, they should be able to get that. So on the request of uh, the apple rootstock breeder, Genera Fazio, I kind of got involved in solving the problem with the, these apple rootstocks that had been recently released, which were resistant to everything, but interestingly, they did not root very well in the traditional soil stool bed processes. Yeah, which so, is a pretty important thing for a rootstock. Exactly, it is. But the point is, you, your main goal is, can you do other systems to produce the rootstock so that you can actually have disease-free material? And you're not putting pesticides or, or fungicides or bactericides to control that in the soil. So basically, trying to develop a material that you have now, which has, which is resistant to every damn thing that is out there, but it won't multiply in soil directly. So, as I say, it is in the in the corn industry. You you plant one corn seed, within three months you get two cobs. That's about thousand seeds. So you multiply that seed very quickly in three months. But in in the production of these trees, you can take the entire process. It involves a rootstock nursery. It requires a finished tree nursery, and then the farmer gets it. In that process, the root system is destroyed or damaged twice creating wounds which will allow for diseases to get in. So I got involved in developing protocols, soil-free protocols, utilizing tissue culture and greenhouse processes. And by 2009, we had developed very good protocols. Uh, some of the nurseries had taken our product and they loved it. And I started getting requests, can you make us millions of rootstocks? And as a WSU faculty member in my lab, my mandate is doing research and training folks and, you know, it was not possible to do that. So this company is an outcome of what the industry needed. In fact, it's uh, uh, funded and supported by the industry. So truly, Phytologens is 
by the farmers, for the farmers, and from the farmers. So it's a truly uh, democratic icon, if you will. But no, really, it's really cool that you're able to do this, and the scale in which you do it is especially interesting. Yeah. Are you um, working outside of those regional crops? Like, can you do stuff in citrus? You know, we are actually uh, in the process of licensing citrus as well. The idea is, so what does Phytologens do? Phytologens delivers true to type, genetically certified, true to type, disease-free, virus-free, uniform, robust material, whose root systems are always intact. We never touch the root system. So the idea is uh, when you plant that material, it's ready to grow. It's ready to hit the ground growing. Sorry for the pun, but uh, but I think what has happened is we've grown things in the soil for too long. That's the problem with all the diseases that come along. So all this process is done in, in tissue culture and greenhouses. We've developed a protocol called as a trademark process called as Multify. What is Multify? It's a confluence of all these advantages that the farmers have always needed, growers have always needed. And we're collaborating with farmers, nurseries across the United States, and there's a lot of interest across the globe as well right now. So it's it's interesting, and you know, tissue culture is a very old technology, since the 1900s. I think what has happened when we work with tissue culture in the labs, we don't care about efficiency that much. But when it comes to farmers or production, you need to have multiplication rates which are really more than, you know, what you get in the soil, obviously. So just as an example, the plants multiply four to five fold every four to five weeks in tissue culture. In the soil, they multiply 10 to 24 in four years. So there's a big difference. And the idea is that new varieties are coming in. How do you bring them quickly? How do you bring them new uh, breeds that are coming out which don't require fungicides, which don't require pesticides, or which the consumer loves more? How do you bring them to market quickly? And this is a way to do that. No, and I guess that's a really important point because when we talk about uh, most things on Talking Biotech Podcast, we're talking about genetic innovations that are there either from traditional breeding or from uh, genetic engineering. And we don't really think about the idea that with a tree, you have to accelerate just getting it, just making a tree. Well, so in that sense, I think it's very important to point out this is a process improvement. Uh, how you grow trees rather than what you what the genetics is. We don't, I mean, the point is that these are all commercial varieties that are being grown in the soil. We have just improved the process, or I should say made it so efficient that we're actually saving about 50 to 500 gallons of clean water per tree produced through this process as well. Yeah, so that, and, that's a, and that's not in the sneeze about it. I mean, when you, when you consider how much water goes into establishment and you know, propagation and everything else. Well, if you think about it, a million trees can feed the Bay Area for three years. Yeah. The amount of savings we make from making these trees in our process. That's uh, really impressive statistics. So what's next for you and for uh, either your company or for your laboratory? What's going on next? So the good thing is a lot of my former graduate students are, you know, one of them is running the company along with some ex- expert executives who have come from the industry. In the lab, we're doing some cool stuff. Uh, since we're sitting in the northwest and you are from the southeast, you know blueberries. You have a blueberry breeding program there. So blueberries are found in the northeast, right? Rutgers. That's another, that's where I landed first, right, in 99. But uh, we have a berry here called a huckleberry, which is a wild blueberry. We've recently been able to domesticate that, and we're kind of working on improving that right now so that the farmers can have a new product to grow. And there is a, there's an interesting part. Huckleberries have been part of the Native American food system as well. It's one of the very important parts. 
And uh, huckleberries are also a part of the natural ecosystem, forestry ecosystem. And because we are not doing any controlled burning these days, those, those stands are kind of being foraged and being destroyed. So what we are trying to do is trying to ease up on that a little bit because, you know, people go out, pick huckleberries as a hobby. They won't change that. But if there is another supply available, there may be a chance that some of these wild stands can regenerate, replenish themselves as well. Oh, you're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, that's really great. And, I, and it just shows how we can use new ideas and technologies to actually work in ways that are ecologically beneficial. Yeah, indeed. They actually uh, help us preserve native genotypes. Really cool stuff. Thank you. All right, if people wanted to know more about your work, where could they find you in social media? Well, I do. I'm on Twitter as A-A-M-I-T-D-H-I-N-G-R-A. That's my Twitter handle. And I'm also on Facebook. Okay, so Amit Dingra, but with two A's. You know, the, the first letter is so nice, I just put it there twice. All right, gotcha, all right. <laughs> and, then, and then what about Phytelligence? Well, Phytelligence is, you know, you can just uh, Google it. It's all on the web. And I'm also on the WSU website. All right, well, very nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing a little bit about what you do. Thank Appreciate you, Kevin. Your time. Thank nice you very to much. see you again. Yeah, likewise. Bye-bye. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.